0: Hi, you handsome. Come to join
1: the party. Hey, party people. Welcome to the Patrama Party, where we don't cause problems, we don't bother nobody, and yet we get yelled at and sent to our rooms. So grab your glass of wine and your pillow to cry in, and let's get into it. I'm your host, Remy Ramirez. And this week, we're talking about emotional neglect. I wanted to get into this topic because I think, I I don't think, this is a fact, the impact of emotional neglect is fucking devastating. But we don't hear it talked about very often because it's the absence of a thing. It's what didn't happen, which makes it sort of harder to name. But here's what this parentingforbrain.com site that I found says about emotional neglect. Child emotional neglect is the parent's failure to meet their child's emotional needs during the early years. It involves unresponsive, unavailable, and limited emotional interactions between that person and the child. Children's emotional needs for affection, support, attention, or competence are ignored. Child emotional neglect also occurs when the parent or primary caregiver exposes the child to extreme domestic violence, allows the child to engage in maladaptive behaviors, refuses to seek treatment for the child's emotional problems, or doesn't provide them with adequate structure. Being institutionalized, placed in an orphanage, or experiencing absent parents may also result in neglect. It goes on to say, neglect is not always obvious because few people talk about it or know what signs to look for, but being emotionally neglected can be a devastating experience. Not only can this childhood trauma affect the child's sense of self, capacity to trust and their ability to build healthy relationships, but it can also affect a child's health conditions and can carry over to one's adult life. So yeah, (laughs) kind of a big deal. So to help us navigate what can be sort of a nebulous topic, I'm so happy to introduce Intuitive Healer and Coach Jess Taylor. Hi, Jess. Welcome to the show. Hi, Remy. Hi, Remy. Thank you for having me. Oh my God. You know I adore you. And so I'm I'm so happy that you were able to come on for this. And this is now, I think, the third time you've been on the show. Yes. Yeah. Yay. I, <laughs> I fucking love having you on the show. So this is a treat for me too. And let's get started for people who don't remember with a, a small astrology icebreaker. You are Sagittarius. I am. Just like me. Yay. Just like you. Two Sagittarius. Which makes all the sense. You know, Sagittarius is the sign of spiritual expansion. It oversees the ninth house, mm-hmm. which is the house of spirituality and of broadened horizons and healing also too, because it's ruled by Jupiter, which is a super healing planet. And I'm just curious, we're coming out of Mercury retrograde in Taurus. <laughs> Taurus oversees money. It oversees safety. For us being Sages, it oversees from a From a sun sign position, it oversees our sixth house, which is the house of work, the house of health, the house of daily routines, how you set your day up.
0: Oh my God. Okay. Yeah. You should have told me that in the session, Remy. That's, that's like,
1: that's so much clarity for me right now. That's exactly, that was my question. Did you, did you have any Mercury retro? uh insights or breakthroughs or mishaps or struggles etc that that, that...
0: (laughs) plenty plenty (laughs) um i don't know if you're you know we we worked together um and um in our last session that is literally let's let's that's what i was feeling and you were telling me some of your things and uh yes definitely money problems work problems (laughs) And some health
1: issues. So that, yeah, that that clarifies it. I'm so glad it's over. You will be very happy to know that, yes, it is over.
0: (laughs) Oh, my goodness.
1: Yeah. Thank God. I know. I had a really fucking intense mercury retrograde as well because as a as a gemini rising that was also happening in my 12th house which is a house of mental health so it's really fucking fun oh, oh yeah when you have mercury retrograde in your house of the subconscious god damn it anyway um cool so we've established mercury retrograde is real <laughs> And it's not fun. It may be very growthful, but it's not an enjoyable experience. Totally. So much growth. Wish we didn't have to grow. So annoying that we have to grow. <laughs> yes, I agree. <laughs> cool. Okay. I'm going to jump into my experience on this topic. While I do that, feel free to interject with thoughts, opinions, you know, musical accompaniment. <laughs> I can't sing. Sh- should you play an instrument you know if you just want to do some like background piano whatever sure or just sit back chill out make a grocery list either way at the end I'll turn some questions over to you how does that sound okay sounds great cool Okay. I'm going to start with this list that I found online. So just to kind of help get a baseline, because this was actually really illuminating for me in understanding emotional neglect and what it looks like. So the this, this list is called the 10 characteristics of an emotionally dismissive parent. One, they view challenging emotions as harmful and want those feelings to go away quickly in their child. I'm sorry, what? <laughs> yes two they want a cheerful child and believe that an unhappy child reflects bad parenting or in other words Mm. reflects poorly on them three they don't pay attention or notice when their child is mildly unhappy or unhappy four they don't talk to or teach their child about emotions which like that's a i mean if you grew up in the 80s no one was talking to you about your emotions you know no no. Five, they don't allow their child to express negative or challenging emotions openly. Hi, it's me. <laughs> this is me. Six, they try to distract, cheer up, scold, shame, criticize, or threaten with punishment to stop the child from expressing challenging emotions.
0: That is like so negative, so toxic. And so many parents do that to their children.
1: Oh, big time. Huge. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Totally this is basically like we're basically just reviewing my childhood right now
0: (laughs) i know and mine yeah
1: yeah totally uh seven they don't have the vocabulary or language language to describe different feelings to their child they view this is eight they view anger as losing control aggression or as the child's selfishness interesting nine they view sadness as self-pity or passivity and 10 they view fear as cowardice or failure. So it's a really helpful and illuminating list and like sorry to be a listicle, but I found this other list that I thought was really helpful so I just wanted to read this one off real quick. These are the signs of emotionally neglectful parents. 1 they speak with a cold and unfriendly tone to the child, 2 they're unresponsive to the child's feelings, 3 they dismiss the child's emotions. Some of the, there's some overlap with the other list too. Four, they don't talk to the child very much. Five, they spend little time with the child and make the child feel unwanted. Six, they offer little or no positive feedback or praise. Seven, they express little or no affection. Eight, they're disengaged and uninvolved in the child's life. Nine, they have a lack of interest in the children's activities. Ten, they persistently find fault with their child. 11 they ignore the child's cues for help in problem-solving tasks 12 they offer no encouragement when the child fails a task 13 they use verbal aggression as a form of discipline Ugh. i almost said lol right now <laughs> uh lol you know that that's just like come on that was just how how life was yeah 14 they're addicted to substances 15, they show depressive symptoms. So so I'll start with this story in terms of making it personal. I mentioned it once a long time ago on an episode. I can't remember which one it was. But when I was like maybe 10 or so, we lived in an apartment building in LA, me, my mom, and my sister. And one day, a bunch of people from the apartment were outside in the pool in the jacuzzi. And I was out there with my mom. And and this young couple that had a a little girl, she's probably like two at the time. And this, this mom, this new mom was asking my mom for advice on how to handle tantrums. And I remember so clearly that my mom said, oh, you don't have to put up with that. Just put her in her room and tell her she can't come out till she's done crying. Oh Wow. So that's what it was like in my house. My mom definitely saw our difficult emotions as selfish and as an affront to her well-being, something we were doing to her. In fact, one of my earliest, earliest memories, I was like two or three, was that we were about to go somewhere and my mom was telling me I couldn't wear something that I wanted to wear. And I just started melting down, right? Like I was just beside myself crying and crying. And my mom told me that if I didn't stop crying, she was gonna leave and go to this thing without me, which of course made me cry even more. And then my mom left. She took my sister and walked out the front door and closed it behind her. And if anyone can remember back to being two or three, being alone without an adult is like a death sentence. It's just like full body panic, despair, freak out. My mom didn't actually leave, but she let me think that she had left for a couple of minutes. She just went outside and then she came back in. And at that point, I was so terrified and overwhelmed. I just did whatever she said because I didn't want to be left alone in the house. Scared. Yes. Terrified. Yeah. The thing that was confusing about my relationship with my mom and the reason that it took me a really long time to realize that my mom's behavior was so problematic was because normally If I was happy, if I was excited about something, if I was achieving or winning or whatever positive thing, my mom was really supportive. I got a lot of verbal affirmation when things were going well in my life as a kid. Like, you know, I made the dance squad or I got all A's or whatever. But what I later came to see was that that drastic difference in responding to those different emotions, being really supportive when I was doing what she liked, but completely shutting me down when I was struggling What it did was it taught me that it was only okay to be upbeat and happy and winning and achieving and approving of her, right? If I was sad or pissed off or struggling, that was totally shamed. That was not okay. And so I learned very quickly that having depression, having anger, um, being frustrated, whatever it was that made me unwanted. I've mentioned this several times on the pod, but when I would try as a kid to talk to my mom about something that she'd done that like hurt my feelings or upset me in some way, she would pretty much always respond with, you're attacking me and I don't deserve this. The feeling was that, on my end, was that she couldn't see me in those moments. If I had a difficult emotion, she could only acknowledge herself and how that made her feel. My emotions didn't matter. I've also told this story before on here, but not for a long time. When I was 14, I was raped by our neighbor and I didn't know that it was a rape because I didn't understand that you could be raped by someone you knew or that it didn't have to involve a gun or that it could be with someone you had a crush on. Anyway, I told my mom what had happened and my mom looked at me in disbelief and said, I can't believe he would do that to me as in to her. And then she went on to explain that, like, she thought that they had a really good, friendly relationship, the two of them. And that was the end of the discussion. She never asked me how I was doing or if I was okay, not just in that moment, but for the months that followed. And uh, I don't know how it wasn't apparent to her, but I fell into a terrible depression after that, that I did my best To hide, right? In fact, I sort of went full throttle in the other direction as a survival tactic. Like, I ran for class vice president and I won. I'm like, I auditioned for the dance team and I made it. You know, like I was getting all A's in my honors classes because what I had learned, of course, was that you get shamed for struggling. So, this depression was happening behind the scenes. Like, I was going into my room and sobbing. I was like sitting in the dark a lot with my door closed. (laughs) Like, a lot of that stuff. It was literally behind closed doors because. If I wanted to be loved, I couldn't just be sad where anyone could see it. And a great example of all of this came about six months later. I had written a poem about the experience with our neighbor and I showed it to my mom. She read it, handed it back to me and said, aren't you over this yet? So there was nowhere for me to go with my pain. There was no one safe to turn to. A big part of, like I mentioned before, of my high school experience was like, I'm going to go to school. I'm going to be really outgoing, have lots of friends, super involved in all the things. Then I go home, close my bedroom door, turn the lights off, put on like fucking Fiona Apple and just cry for hours. I was learning to compartmentalize so that my heartache and my despair wouldn't be a burden to others. And I would go on to do that for really the rest of my life up until recently with my dad, it didn't matter what was happening with me. My dad just, and, and I'm not saying this with like, um, like with resentment, I'm genuinely like, this is a scientific fact. My dad quite simply didn't give a shit or anyway, just like not outwardly. Right. Growing up with my dad was, was really scary. For one thing, he was super verbally violent. I walked on eggshells around him constantly and was always afraid of him. If I started crying Because he'd yelled at me, I was in trouble for crying. I heard a lot of stop your fucking crying from my dad. So again, totally not allowed to have difficult emotions. But it was definitely more than that. That list of the signs of neglectful parents that I read at the top, that was almost all him. Little to no affection, lack of interest in the child's activities, little feedback or praise, cold and unfriendly tone, persistently finds fault. Like all of that was my dad. I remember when I was six, I asked my dad if I could help him in the kitchen making dinner, which was like, you know, sort of a desperate attempt on my part to connect. And uh, he handed me a bag of dried beans to open. Well, I don't know if you guys have ever tried to open those. It's like fucking impossible as an adult to open those bags. But anyway, I tried. I pulled and pulled and pulled on it until it burst open and beans went flying everywhere. And of course, that just enraged my dad. And he just started screaming at me. Around that same time, when I was probably six years old, my dad came over one day to take care of us while my mom was at work. Anytime he would do that, which wasn't very often, but but when it did happen, what that meant was that he would tell us to go outside so he could play the piano. My mom had a piano and my dad's a musician. So it was like, I'm doing musician time in here. Then he would make us dinner and then he would watch whatever he wanted on TV and we had to go to bed. During one of those times, my sister and I were roller skating in the driveway, and I suddenly had this burst of excitement because I thought it was spring, which sounds funny, but you know how kids are. They're just like, I have this idea. This is really exciting. So I went inside super pumped because maybe it's spring. And I ran up to my dad who was kind of like dozing off watching TV. And I was like, I kind of like touched his arm and I was like, daddy, daddy, is it spring? And he opened his eyes. And just, he looked at me and he just goes, go away, Remy. So yeah, just no interest in me, no excitement or curiosity about who I was. I couldn't do anything right. And if I cried in front of him, I was in huge trouble. Um, My dad's also an addict. In those days, it was big time with alcohol and weed and cocaine and LSD. So that I'm sure, obvi- uh, needless to say, had a lot to do with it too. But the feeling with my mom was that As long as I stayed happy and upbeat, I was loved. With my dad, there was nothing I could do to get love. There were only the things I could do to get him not to yell at me, like not crying and not making a mistake, which, of course, that was impossible. So in other words, there was nothing I could do strategically to get my dad to treat me like he loved me. So how did that impact me as an adult? A few years ago, when I was living in L.A., I did this emotional intelligence boot camp thing. And one of the things they had us do was there were like, uh, I don't know, close to 200 people in this huge ballroom. And they had us partner up with a stranger. And that person would sit really close to you and yell in your face. What do you want? What do you want? What do you want? (laughs) And you were supposed to yell back at the top of your lungs all the things you wanted. So just imagine there's like a 100 people screaming, what do you want? And all these other people screaming out what they wanted. So it's like super loud and emotionally intense. And anyway, I was screaming all the things, like the normal things, like, I want to fall in love. I want a job I love. I want to make six figures, you know, like whatever. And then all of a sudden, something just broke in me. And I started sobbing and screaming at the top of my lungs over and over again, I wanna be seen, I wanna be seen. At the time, I didn't understand what that meant. I had no idea at that point in my life, pre-therapy, how deeply I'd been abused as a kid. So I actually felt really embarrassed. I felt like, whoa, what is this like attention whore thing that's like deep inside me? It took me years to put it together. But now I look back on that and it's such a powerful, pivotal moment for me because it was this point where I allowed something in my subconscious, something that was wiser than my conscious mind to break free of being in the shadows. And it was so deep and it was so authentic, but it would still be many years till I understood how to synthesize that need to be seen and not neglected into my relationships. So I'll give an example of that years ago. I had a friend. I made a friend, let's call her Lisa, and the way that Lisa and I had became friends initially, like literally the moment we met, I was like, "Hi, I'm Remy. How are you? And she was like, "I'm terrible. I'm going through this terrible breakup, and I'm so sad and so Immediately, our friendship was about her being in emotional distress and me being sort of the caretaker and the shoulder to cry on and all of that, which was a super easy role for me to slide into because that was my dynamic with my mom, right? Like I was super comfortable with that. About a year into our friendship, I happened to be staying with Lisa for a couple of weeks while I was visiting her part of the world and i was going through a super a super tough time myself i was having suicidal ideation pretty bad but of course not telling her because i didn't want to be a burden one day i asked her if she wanted to cuddle and watch a movie and she said oh i don't like physical affection with friends only with romantic interests and that struck me as really odd because when she'd been going through this breakup trauma i would hold her while she cried and soothe her and um you know, she had never said she didn't want that. She had never like mentioned she didn't like it. She'd never pulled away or anything. And she seemed to like really want me to do that. But what I wasn't putting together at this time was that in that scenario, I had been taking care of her emotional needs. In this scenario, this was about me asking for something. So anyway, I, of course, I totally respected that. I didn't push her boundary at all. But I knew that one of the things that really helps me when I'm in, such a dark place is physical affection. So I called up another friend, we'll call her Jennifer, who also lived in this same town where Lisa lived. And I asked if she wanted to cuddle and watch a movie. And she was like, fuck, yeah, it's my favorite thing to do. She's a Taurus. So (laughs) she loves it. So I was spending time with Jennifer cuddling. And when I got back to Lisa's house, she was really upset. And she was like, why are you spending so much time at Jennifer's house? And I was like, look, I I really didn't want to tell you this because I didn't want to freak you out. But I've been having suicidal ideation. And when I'm in that space, I really need physical affection. And when I asked you to cuddle the other day, you said you don't like doing that with friends. So I've been hanging out with Jennifer because she's really into physical affection with friends. And Lisa looked at me and she said, well, all my other friends tell me I'm a really good friend. And I just fell right into my old shit that I'd learned from my parents. I was like, no, you are a good friend. You're great. I went right into taking care of her feelings. She didn't ask me a single thing about my mental health. She didn't express any concern for me. We didn't talk about my suicidal ideation at all. And then the next day, She didn't text me one single time to check on me. And that night, when I got back from doing whatever I'd been doing that day, she had locked me out of the house and gone to bed because she forgot. That was her reason verbatim. She forgot. Now, that's obviously super fucking egregious and the reddest of red flags. But because I was so used to being emotionally neglected, I stayed in that friendship for years. And the red flags just kept coming. I would have her over and I would be like, Hey, I'm making this. Do you want some? Are you hungry? And then I'd go to her house and she'd eat in front of me and never offer me anything like stuff like that. And of course, that's a much smaller example than not giving a shit that like your friend is considering suicide. But it's just to say that there was a whole range to the ways her disregard for my experience showed up in the friendship. But the real issue in that situation wasn't her. It was me. It was that I stayed in that friendship for years. I continued to show up for her and give and not get back in return because that's what I was used to. It wasn't until my therapist was like, Remy, this relationship is a problem. And I started voicing my needs to Lisa and started to see how super resistant she was to reciprocating that I was finally able to let the friendship go. So what I want to say about that is, is that when you grow up being treated like your feelings don't matter, or that you're only there to cheer up your mom, or you have to make sure your emotions aren't a burden on anyone else, or or that it's normal not to get affection and warmth, at least in my case, you grow up and easily fall into those relationship dynamics as an adult. I'm talking about a friend in this case, but I could just as easily be talking about a, a romantic relationship. With the men I dated, I always felt like I had to be really careful not to be too demanding because I didn't want them to think I was too much or too emotional. Right. Like I wanted to be that laid back girl who was like, oh, we had sex. And then I didn't hear from you for a month. And my friend told me you were flirting with her at a party. That's cool. That's chill. And then it was like, you know, Morgan Freeman voice but it was not chill, (laughs) right? And I would have a meltdown alone in my room with the lights off, listening to sad music and never talking about it. In other words, my feelings didn't matter at all. There was the dude I'd been sleeping with for years, for years, who never tried to hang out with me outside of us fucking, even though we had a lot of the same friends. And when I finally said to him, I just honestly feel like you don't even like me. Like as a person, he responded with, Well, that's just you being stupid. And instead of being like, bro, what? No, not okay. Like, I'm walking away from this. Instead, I was like, he's right. My feelings are stupid because that was coming on the heels of 25 years of being in a family where everyone around me was constantly sending me messages that my feelings were stupid and that they didn't matter. Their feelings were important, but mine were annoying and ridiculous and unwanted. So of course, in my adult relationships, I didn't just magically show up like, yo, I expect my emotions to be treated with loving care. (laughs) No, no way. I was like, Please feel free to shit all over my emotional landscape. But again, really, the issue behind that was, A, that I didn't leave those situations, or anyway, I would, but like not until my heart had been like thrown on the floor and peed all over, right? And B, that I bought into those narratives, I was so used to being neglected emotionally that I believed my challenging feelings were stupid, that they were too much, that they were a burden, and that I didn't have any right to expect that people would treat them with love. Did you want to say something, Jess? I
0: did. Yes. Go for it. So one thing that I wanted to point out, and I understand why you're phrasing it that way, but you didn't buy into anything, Remy. We don't buy into that shit. Nobody's giving us a choice. Nobody says, hey, Remy, sweetheart, would you like this maladaptive coping strategy or would you like to have a healthy one? You didn't choose. You didn't buy into anything. We have this um, illusion of control a lot, especially in retrospect. But there isn't any, Remy, because if you were in charge of what you believed, you would have believed something different. Mm. It wasn't up to you, my love. It was... Everyone all around you, and how is a little girl that's six years old supposed to know that her feelings matter,, right. when nobody tells her that they do, so just give that responsibility back to those that it belongs to. That's not yours. Yours is to heal, to to get better, to to feel like you matter, but you didn't do that to yourself, my love. Yeah, you didn't buy into anything. That's just my two cents.
1: No. And thank you so much. And I, I mean, I was referring to me as an adult buying into those narratives, but still you're right. It's like, even at 25, I had, I had never gone to therapy and it was, you're right. Like, it's not like someone offered me a choice and I was like that one, you know, I'd like the bad one, please Yeah, <laughs> take that one. Yeah. Can I do the one where I feel like shit all the time? Yeah, you're right. I just was doing what I knew and what was familiar and yeah i wasn't i it's not like i was making a choice so thank you so much for for stepping in there because i you're right yeah i totally was just doing what i knew i was just doing what i knew yeah yes another thing i want to name in this conversation is that it was second nature to hide my challenging feelings in adult relationships my experience was that not being upbeat meant not being wanted so if i was frustrated, mad, depressed, hurt, heartbroken, triggered, whatever it was, suicidal. I wasn't just going to walk up to you and tell you that. That didn't feel safe at all. It felt like if I was honest about those harder feelings, I would lose people, or I would be shut down, or I would be rejected. So there was a lot of suppressing and a lot of pretending, which really left me feeling drained and lonely. And I think... In reality, it kept me in relationships with people who wanted me around just to pick them up and boost them, but who couldn't or wouldn't do the same for me. So what can I offer in terms of healing from emotional neglect? In my experience, emotional neglect in childhood is a form of betrayal, and it taught me to betray myself. That's been the greatest impact of childhood neglect in my life. I learned early on that feeling painful emotions was something I should be ashamed of, that my feelings didn't matter and that I had to hide my pain away. And as awful as my experiences have been with all these different people in my life who treated me that way as an adult, the fact that I was getting on board with that and as we have just realized it's like I didn't really have a choice but to do that. But that that was the thing that had the most damaging impact is that I just stayed and got re injured by these relationships. So I think there's been a combination in the healing. One has been the shift out of the shame into acceptance of those emotions. Not just accepting those emotions, but taking care of them. Instead of being like, Well, if you're sad and you're struggling, then no one will want you. You did this to yourself. You're an idiot, right? Like it's the practice of moving out of that and into behaviors of love and care. Like one thing that I do is sometimes if I'm really in it, I'll put my hands on my heart and say, this is a painful moment. All beings experience pain. May I be gentle with myself during this time? Which by the way, that's a little prayer that I got from Tess Whitehurst, who's kind of like a witch and a spiritual practitioner that I work with sometimes. And another thing I do is instead of punishing myself from for my difficult emotions, I've started asking myself, what do you need right now? Do you need to call someone? Do you need to be alone in nature? Do you need to go to a thrift store and bury yourself in clothes for three hours? Do you need to dance? Do you need to see if you can schedule an extra appointment with a therapist, right? Like, in fact, recently, my therapist had me make a list of things I can do when I'm struggling, because a lot of times when you're in that space, you don't have the ability or clarity to know what you need or to think outside of what you're used to. So we made a list that I can refer to when I'm not in a good place. And I highly recommend that to y'all. And I want to say this takes time. And I'm not perfect at it. Not even that long ago, I had a bout of this come up. And the way I described it was, it was like there were all these monsters at my door. Jess, did we talk about this in session? Yeah, yeah, we did. (laughs) Yeah. It was like, there were all these monsters at my door and I was having to push so hard against the door to try to prevent them from bursting through. And finally I got so exhausted from pushing that I just let them in and heard them out. And they were telling me all the old stories. You're a burden. You're doing everything wrong. You'll be alone forever. You can't trust yourself. You can't trust life. Like all these really painful old stories. And I, wrote down all the things they were saying so I could get them out of my head, which by the way, I don't know if that's a good idea or a bad idea for everyone. But for me, it felt like a relief in the moment to get it out on paper because suppressing difficult thoughts and feelings has been such a painful part of my story that like, you know, fighting the monsters or pretending the monsters aren't there like that doesn't always work for me. I sometimes just need to let the voices out so I can have that nosedive around it and then work my way back up. But that's just me, everyone's different and those voices can be very overwhelming and very convincing. So that practice may not be helpful for everyone. But anyway, I went through that whole thing. I cried, I grieved. And then like Jess and I, like we worked together in a loving gentle environment and within a couple of days I was feeling way better. Whereas before these bouts would last months, right? Instead, this is something that now when it does come up, it comes up for just a couple days. So my point is, you're not just going to like make these connections in your head and then boom, you're cured of all your pain and you never have to go through it again. But the more aware I've been of my wounds and these distorted beliefs that like lurk in the shadows, the less of a hold they have over me and the better I am at being loving with them rather than beating myself up about them. The second piece of healing here is forgiving myself, which has also been hard. As I've healed, I've looked back on these relationships that that I stayed in for years and years that just weren't reciprocal and that mimicked my relationship with my parents in all these different ways. And I've been like, what the fuck, Remy? You know, and I think it's one of those like pitfalls of growth is that you can easily compare who you are now to who you were then and be like why did you do that? <laughs> Get so like mad at yourself. So, I've been working on being gentler with myself in that way too instead of being like wow, you really fucked that one up, instead of just being like you know, I think I needed that relationship. In order to get to where I am now, right? Like I needed that relationship to give me the opportunity to up level and to climb out of those old behaviors. And when you look at it that way, you can kind of feel great about the decision you made because you can be like, shit, that was an opportunity to grow. And I did. I chose a new path. Like, fuck, yeah, me. But I think really at the bottom of all of this is the thing that I talk about so much on this pod, which is getting so clear on the fact that you matter. Neglect is the abuse of not mattering to the people you should matter to the most during a time in your development when you needed to know you mattered more than you would ever need to know that again in your whole fucking life, right? Like it paves a neural pathway in your brain as a child of I don't matter, and that makes it really easy to show up to whatever situation life throws at you as an adult being like, Oh, whatever you need, or I'm easy. Like I'm so easygoing, like what it just works for me, whatever it is, you know, or like, Oh, you want to treat me like a dog poo in the road. I, I don't have any, I'm not angry about that. Let me just actually focus on you right now and what you need. Right. Like, sounds good. <laughs> Jess is like pointing it at herself to like, yes, we know this. We know this struggle so well. Yeah. The antidote to that is getting so clear on the fact that your feelings matter, whether that's through affirmations, like Jess, like you gave me incredible affirmations. You have so many times, like I matter, my needs matter. I deserve to be treated with care. I deserve friends who give at the same level that I do, like whatever the thing is, which by the way like just the affirmations that you gave me, we worked, I worked those for like months, right? Every night listening to that. And it fucking changed my life. And one thing that was so helpful um, that you and I did. And so, and so maybe this is helpful for other people is that those affirmations weren't like, I matter, my needs matter. Of course, that's really general, but you helped me get really specific in my affirmations so that like, I remember we were doing those affirmations when I was confronted with an issue with my mom and my mom was like, you know, she was going through her whole mental health, how she shows up. And I had always been really understanding of her and never thinking about like me. And I remember I, we'd been doing that for months. And when it, so when this thing happened with my mom, I was like, yeah, here's the thing. I matter. I matter. And so this behavior can't happen with me like this. This is a non negotiable babe. (laughs) I was so proud. Well, thanks. Yeah, it was uh, it was a real game changer. So, you know, whatever that practice looks like for you of getting to a place of clarity that you fucking matter, that's really attacking this weed at the root so that it doesn't just fucking grow back all over your life. Okay. Jess, how's it going over there?
0: Good. I'm having a good time. I know they can only hear me not see me, but I'm like making like faces and like nodding along.
1: <laughs> yes. Yes, you're giving me lots of um <laughs> lots of physical cues that you're you're you get it. Of course I know you get it. That's why we work together. Okay. Let me let me jump into some questions for you. Sure. I mentioned at the top, but like I I think emotional neglect can be tricky because it's the absence of a thing, you know, it's like it's kind of harder to know that it's happening when it's happening. So with that in mind, I'd love to really name the different ways it can look so people have a clearer picture of it. Can you sort of walk us through the different ways emotional neglect can look?
0: Um, yeah, absolutely. And I spent some time thinking about this when you sent me the questions yesterday. And really, um, at its core, every form of abuse is an emotion, is an emotional neglect. Mm. So whether you are looking at physical abuse, sexual abuse, whether you're being called names or criticized, whether you're being ignored or dismissed at the core of it is the main thing of emotional neglect. Your feelings don't matter. And you've said that in so many ways, as you went through your history and your story, and it can look that way, the way it did for you or the way it did for me, where I was just given away to people uh, to take care of me. And it didn't matter how hurt, how much I hurt, how much I cried, how sad I was. There was just no choice. Um, I just had to go there and be abused and be yelled at. And emotional neglect is just the internalization that what you feel doesn't matter, that what you need doesn't matter. And I think the worst of it is that your pain doesn't matter, right? That you are in fucking agony emotionally or physically. And the people who are supposed to protect you don't care, even get angry at you for feeling pain. One of the worst ways that happens is sexual abuse, right? When you are sexually abused as a child, you are literally learning physically and emotionally emotionally Your pain is irrelevant. You don't matter. And so as a survival technique, we all find these different ways of fitting in, of pleasing or appeasing, right? So with your mom, you were pleasing her. With your dad, you were appeasing him Mm. because there was no chance of him approving. So you had kind of resigned yourself to that. And your only goal with him was to To not get hurt. With your mom, as toxic as that was, there was at least a chance of getting approval. And so you had something to work towards, right? It felt a little bit less helpless than it did with your dad. Emotional neglect underlines absolutely everything that hurts us.
1: Mm.
0: And we do it to each other all the time. But Let's get some specifics, okay? Whether you are growing up with a critical mother or a critical father, and they're just always telling you, you're doing this wrong, you're doing that wrong, you know, keep your chin up, it's fine, just get over it. It can be very mild looking. It can be just like a normal growing up paradigm where you're just being pushed to perform and you're being told, you know, um, stop crying, sit down, do your work, it'll be fine. Where they tell you that, oh, no, it doesn't hurt. It's just a little pinch, right? Just at the doctor, that's fucking emotional neglect. That's emotional abuse. That says your pain and your experience of what you're experiencing is is irrelevant. It doesn't matter to me, right? We're, at the essence of it is gaslighting. It's gaslighting your experience of your life and your world and your body so it can be actually quite mild i have clients who haven't had any glaring abuse but they were criticized or their parents were fighting in front of them a lot or there are parents who took care of them but never checked in with them how are you feeling how is this affecting you They were good enough parents, right? They weren't yelling, they weren't abusive, but they just kind of took care of the physical needs and the emotional parts just weren't really considered. Right. And then it's almost like in a way, um, not that what we've gone through isn't just as traumatic, but when people have a good childhood and they're still traumatized, it just creates such a gaslighting within themselves Mm. why am i depressed why am i anxious why am i having nightmares it makes no sense i had a good childhood there what's wrong with me and they don't recognize that you know it doesn't have to be glaringly violent in order to be damaging emotional neglect can be very quiet it just means you're taught that what you feel and experience isn't relevant it doesn't matter so it can be the violent way that you were raised other people me the complete disregard for who you are by your father the parentification and just emotional and verbal abuse by your mother but it can be quiet too it can be it's a good childhood but somehow nobody really
1: cares about what i'm feeling That was one of the things on the list that um, I I was that really sort of shocked me because I was just thinking about how ubiquitous this was, especially in the 70s, 80s, 90s, you know, that that piece about um, doesn't talk to their children about their feelings or doesn't have the language about around emotions, like doesn't have a a, a vocabulary around emotion. Like what parent in the 80s was like. I mean, I'm sure there were some, but like the 70s and 80s, it was like, go ride your bike outside. I have no idea where you are for hours. You're five years old. You know what I mean? You're seven, whatever. Yeah. That piece you're bringing in is so powerful that it can look all the way from like sexual abuse and severe domestic violence to just like, we're not asking you how you feel. We're not. Exactly. Exactly.
0: And it still happens today, right? The children, they, they fall down and they, they, you know, hurt their knee. And parents believe that if they just say, you're okay, you're okay, you're okay. Mm. They will stop crying. And that's a good thing. They do stop crying, but not because they just learned that their pain matters. They just learned their pain does not matter. And what they need to show is that they're okay.
1: Mm. oh, they're just trying to appease. And they're like, you're saying I'm okay. That's what you want. So I'm going to stop crying. But it's not because this doesn't fucking hurt. Exactly. And then I would parent my child the opposite
0: way. And I would get all this pushback of how I'm making it worse for him because I'm sitting there and like, hey, honey, are you okay, sweetheart? Oh, my God, that looks like a big boo-boo. And yeah, he would cry a little harder. But they would say I'm making it worse for him because I'm acknowledging his emotions I'm holding space for his pain. No, I'm giving him the space to actually feel what he's feeling and not gaslighting him into thinking it doesn't hurt Mm. when it does. Right. But it can be harder to parent that way because there's big emotions in children. Big, huge. Everything is dramatic. Right. But emotional neglect, emotional invalidation really is what it is, right? And whether you're calling it neglect or abuse, it's about invalidating the emotional experience of another being. And you can do that in so many different ways, including not checking in with them and also just kind of talking over it, being like, you're okay, you're fine, buck up, just work harder. You'll get it next time.
1: Even things that seem encouraging can be invalidating. Yeah. yeah. You know, I have such clear memories of hurting myself as a little girl and running to an adult and the adult being like, you're fine. You're fine. And I remember, and like, as you were talking about that right now, I can remember that that hurt me like emotionally because children, it's like we go to adults for an opportunity to, to have a reality be validated or not. Right. Like that there's no a child validates their own reality, right? Like it's, it, it has to be filtered through the adult. And so I remember like one time I went to camp, I hated it, but I went to camp for like a week when I was six and I fell And I scraped my knee and I remember my cam counselor was like, you're, I kind of was crying and she was like, you're, you're fine. You're fine. This isn't even a big deal. And I just, I felt so isolated was what it was. I felt so lonely because it was like, I'm not fine, but I don't have anywhere to go with this. Like, and that was so interesting is like, man, talk about the echo of that in my adulthood. I'm lonely, but I don't have anywhere to go with this. Like, yeah, yeah, it really does reverberate. Yeah. And it's everywhere.
0: It's, you know, we're talking about childhood, but it's like in our society, it is everywhere. It is work harder. Don't complain. Don't say anything. Don't throw yourself a pity party. Oh my God, get over it. Mm. What is that? Except
1: literally the core of emotional neglect. Or even like, like good vibes only is just another fucking form of emotional neglect it is toxic positivity.
0: Don't let the negative thoughts in. Or when people tell you, and this is in the manifestation healing culture too, like, just let it go. Just, you know, step into your power. Just surrender. We had to talk about that. Yeah. And, uh, that is another form of emotional invalidation, emotional neglect of saying you should be able to do this, right? That you can't is not my problem. I don't
1: care. Yeah. Oh my god, I have um such a great story about that from like a from like a woo woo perspective. So, for people who don't know, like I read tarot and um I have I had gotten this new oracle deck that I hadn't worked with a ton. But I was going through some shit and I was like plea and I like asked for guidance and I pulled out this oracle this new oracle deck and I fucking pulled ascend ascend ascend. I don't know what
0: that means Remy. You have to have, you it, have to
1: explain. Ascend like be above be above this. Oh my god, like rise above it. Rise like, above oh. this. Okay. And I fucking yelled at my spirit guides. I was like this is <laughs> not fucking helpful and I and I was like and I am never using this deck again. I was like this deck? No. And now I have it like in the living room and I'm like I told my roommates I'm like I don't like this deck but if you guys want to use it you can use it cuz I was just like Look, I get that that's where you're coming from as a fucking entity, but that is not where I'm at in my human experience in this moment, (laughs) dude. (laughs) We just had to talk about that in our session. Yes. Like
0: they mean well and they have all the answers, but fuck this. They don't know what it feels like to be a human experience. Yeah. They're like, oh just let it go just surrender just rise above it and you're like fuck you fuck you yeah fuck you totally and and, but literally like to me that is the core of the toxicity of our entire world is we are so busy all the time trying to get over things and we miss the step where we need to just for me validate it just you know neglect is the is the lack of validation right Saying it's okay that you're feeling what you're feeling. It makes fucking sense that you are. Yeah. When I told you about, you know, you were saying I bought into it. I stayed so long. And I'm like, but Remy, you didn't. You never had any choice in the matter. Our brain is so hardwired to try and make us guilty so that it has some sort of illusion of control.
1: Yeah, totally.
0: When the truth is, I'm sorry, guys, but we're not actually in charge of how our brain develops. We're not in charge of our maladaptive coping strategies. We didn't get to pick. We are not the ones who are holding us back.
1: We're just doing the best we can to deal with what was done to us. Well, this is perfect because my next question is, how does emotional neglect as children impact us internally as adults? Like what goes on with our emotional landscape? you know you're you're sort of bringing this around to this question and so i'm just curious in light of what you're what you were just talking about can you expand on that well you really kind of um already mentioned it right which is you tend
0: to think that everything that other people's needs matter more than yours mm-hmm. basic right just the basics of that you tend to think that other people should mind read what you need mm. because you're too afraid to say what you want and you tend to over deliver overdo overtake care for other of other people other people's needs other people's wants all the while that you're feeling drained and more drained and more drained until you get to a point of breaking down and being like i can't do this anymore i need something back
1: Mm -hmm.
0: right but we're so afraid so adults who go through emotional neglect And it doesn't really even matter which way. You put everybody else ahead of you because you think you don't matter enough to even say what you want. You might not even know what you want. You might be so deep in the feeling of the only way I get to matter is if I matter to other people. That you have never even asked yourself the question, what makes me happy? What do I want? So and so many people actually have emotional neglect in their past and in their history. And it plays out in so many various um, kind of dynamics that it's hard to see sometimes that this person that is my partner and me, we're both actually coming from emotional neglect. We're just manifesting it differently. But both of us are afraid to say what we want both of us are angry at the other person for not giving us what we want and the core of it is really there's a part of me that's terrified that I'm not really worthy of getting what I want and that if I say it out loud I won't get it and that'll confirm to me that I'm not worthy Mm. so I'd rather keep my mouth shut and keep trying to get this other person to give me what I want without me actually having to say it out loud oh my god
1: that's like my entire dating history (laughs) Yes, yes,
0: because that's, I mean, and it's not just you, Rami. That's like, I see that everywhere. I see it within myself. It's like, I'm trying to get you to give me what I need without having to say what I need. So I'm going to keep trying to make you happy while I'm sort of still expecting you to figure out what I need to make me happy. Totally. And if you don't give it to me, eventually I'll get angry at you and I'm going to let you have it. And you're going to be like, what? You never said anything. So I think it's honest, honestly almost a epidemic of generations of emotional neglect. Right. And we're all trying to get from each other what we never got from our parents. And the healing piece is learning how to give it to yourself when every part inside of you desperately wants it from another person. Mm. We're so needy of it to be another person. And that makes perfect sense. And the hardest part about self-love is letting go of that
1: idea that another person can heal you and fix you and fill up the hole. Yeah. Yeah. That was something that I recently was kind of working through and we even did a episode on it because yeah, that's, it's a balance. And you and I have talked about this in session too. There's that balance of like, we need love. We need people. We're not fucking an island over here. And at the same time, wanting someone to come in and fix it, it just doesn't fucking work.
0: And that's the thing is what's so upsetting to be the human experience of this duo of the soul, where it's like, dude, like, really, like, you put me in a body that desperately needs human affection, human connection, love, validation from others, okay? And then you say, the solution to my problem is that I need to give it to myself. (laughs) Yeah, the fuck? (laughs) What the fuck? What the fuck, dude? Exactly. Uh... I'm, not, I'm not saying this is easy at all. And I think that's another thing. I'm always so careful in my sessions and with everyone to never say, oh, just let it go or just do this. No, fuck. You get to feel how you feel. And that I think is always the first step. Validate. Validate what you're actually feeling. It's it's fucking okay. It's not great. And that's another thing. It gets to suck. It gets to suck. You get to say this fucking sucks. I am upset. I don't like this. Can we switch? And I say that to my higher self all the time. Can we switch? Can you just give me a break?
1: Yeah, you take over for a minute. I'm gonna go be a fucking ghost in heaven. (laughs) Just chill out.
0: I'm gonna be the light show, I say to her. I'm gonna be the light show, the fluffy energy, and you be me. You figure this
1: out. Yeah. Let me ask you this. Can you kind of talk about emotional neglect and attachment styles? They usually go to
0: two different ways. So there's the anxious attachers like you and me. Right. Um, And they usually come uh, when there was some sort of hope in your childhood. Mm. So you get anxiously attached when you've had sort of that bread crumbing. You've had that. If I just try hard enough, I will get the love. I will get the attention. I will get the affection. When there was hope and you tend to become a. Avoidant attacher when there just wasn't.
1: Mm.
0: Or the attachment style was utterly cloying. Like your mom was like helicopter mom always over you. Like never letting you do anything for yourself.
1: Oh yeah. You might get avoidant from that. Interesting. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. Now you also have what's called disorganized or fearful avoidant attachment. And that's the combination of the two. And that tends to be a combination parenting where you have someone give you hope along with the dismissal, Mm. right? But also feel like there is no hope. No matter what you do, you're never going to get loved. You're never going to get safety. And so you become disorganized where you are anxiously attaching. But then when they get too close and they're too intimate, you push them away where you want, but you don't want. You kind of, you want the intimacy and the vulnerability and the closeness, but then when it's there, you get scared, you feel cloyed, you feel like overwhelmed and you kind of want to be, ah, no, I don't tend to have that too much. I don't know about you. I tend to be like, oh my goodness, let's spend every day together. Please call me every second of the day. Thank you very much. Same. But um, there's plenty of people who are more of the push-pull kind, uh, fearful avoidant, so they want the closeness, they get it. And then they tend to be the ones that sort of hide themselves away. Like they're not breaking up the relationship or anything, but they'll hide away for like a few days and they're like, I need my space, you know, and let's meet again next week. Mm. While well, you're the anxious and you're going crazy trying to get through the next 10 days <laughs> before you can see this person again. That's me. And that person loves you, but they're still very sort of guarded. Yeah. They don't want the closeness as much. That's an avoidant, fearful attachment style. And then you have the totally avoidant ones who also kind of want closeness, but they're too terrified. They're too terrified to go for
1: it because in their childhood, there just really wasn't any hope for closeness. Mm, That's so helpful to understand sort of how it plays out. I Sometimes when I think about it and I think about attachment style, like I said, I... I always, I didn't realize how unsafe my mom was until later because in comparison to my dad, it was so much better. And so I just got really used to thinking like my dad, I mean, my mom is like, well, also my mom um, really loved the narrative that she was the hero, right? Like she, that's part of her mental health stuff is like, she is always she, she's a victim or a hero, right? Like those are the only two roles for her. And um. so I got really into that narrative too, just, you know, being like the supporter that I am. <laughs> I was like, sure, whatever you say, that's right. And so sometimes when I think about it, it was like, because I think I felt safe to some extent with my mom, even though like there were a lot of really unsafe moments with my mom, a lot. Mm-hmm. With my dad, it was sort of like I transferred the hope over to my dad, even though my dad wasn't giving me anything. And I kept like throwing myself. I, I talk about this on the pod too, but I kept like throwing myself at my dad, trying to get a different response from him because I really felt like, that. you know, like I was the problem. So there was something I could, if only I could figure out what the thing is. And sometimes I think about how that impacted my attachment style of like, it's, it's sort of like, I think when people talk about attachment style, they're like, if you had one, it's like, feels very singular, but it was almost like the, these two energies merged for me. They do. Okay. They do. So you can
0: have it one or the other for me too. It's merged. And I think maybe that's more the case for anxious attachment. I don't know. But if you think about anxious attachment style in terms of locus of control, have you ever heard of that?
1: Yeah, but I don't know what it means.
0: So, basically, locus of control is um how much you think you have control over your life and your environment, how much you're influencing everything, versus how much you feel like a victim, and you think that everything is happening to you, right? And anxious attachment style is very much called an internal locus of control. You think you're you have the ability to control this. You think you're in charge. It has that sort of drawback of feeling a lot of guilt and shame. Mm. Right. So with an internal locus of control, neither healthy nor unhealthy. I'm not saying either one of those. It means a lot of guilt and shame.
1: Right. Because it's like, I, I should be able to
0: fix this. Exactly. And it, it does also give you a sense of control. This illusion of control, this anxious attachment style, the guilt and the shame. They do one actually very adaptive thing. They keep you trying. Mm. If you have an external locus of control and you develop more of a maybe disorganized attachment style, avoidance are a little kind of tricky because they care so little about what other people think that it doesn't really affect them as much. Fearful avoidant is more sort of the other side to things. They tend to have more of an external locus of control, feeling more like things are happening to them and they can't they can't do anything to that. Mm there's more helplessness there's also shame plenty of it and also guilt but there's more of a feeling of I'm I can't change anything I can't make it different and that leads to depression Mm -hmm. and a lack of trying so as weird as this may sound an anxious attachment style actually
1: kind of keeps you away from depression and helplessness Mm, because there's you feel like you have some control
0: I can do it I just have to try harder
1: Interesting. Yeah.
0: So, um neither one is super healthy as you can tell. Right. But one is more internal, I'm in charge, I'm in control, and the other one is more like I'm helpless.
1: There's nothing I can do. Yeah. And so when when we want when we're like, okay, let's fucking heal the impact of emotional neglect, what does it look like to do that? You already touched on it
0: Remy and it's it's kind of the same thong- song I always <laughs> Kind of thing. It's you validate, you validate yourself over and over again. A lot of times I found that when I was in therapy, you know, people would say to me, just sit with your emotions, just let them move through you, just breathe, just meditate. And um, I found that all very unsatisfying and very unhelpful. And I realized through my own healing journey, you know, what was missing was me. Me really saying to myself, it's fucking okay that I feel the way I feel. It's okay that I don't want to feel this way. And that there is nothing I can't validate because we have this, because of emotional neglect, we're always fighting our emotions. We're always fighting our thoughts. We're always going, I shouldn't feel this way. I shouldn't think this way. I should get over it, right? Manifestation only only adds another toxic layer to that because you're like, oh no, now that I'm thinking and feeling this way, I'm going to manifest a shit show. Right. So realizing to me was, no, there is nothing that doesn't get to be here because it already is. Whether I'm fighting it or not fighting it, it's not going anywhere. It's not like you holding the door on those monsters made them actually go away. Right. They just stuck around until you had nothing left, no strength to hold them back. That's how every thought and feeling we have is. It sticks around. But what do we all crave? Why do we run to our moms or dads and say, oh, I hurt myself? Because we're craving validation. Mm. The brain doesn't care if you're the one giving yourself validation. It actually works really well. The only thing I find with my clients is that they forget that they get to validate everything. Everything. Not just the one feeling you have of, I'm afraid of being rejected, but of course, I'm afraid of being rejected. Of course, I don't want that to happen. Of course, I would rather curl up in a ball. Of course, I don't know if I can handle it. Of course, I hate that I can't.
1: I don't know if I can handle it. Right. Yeah. Like it's everything. Of course, I'm mad at myself that I'm not sure if I can handle it. Right. Yeah. Yes.
0: Of course, I'm mad at myself. Of course, I hate this about me. Of course, I wish I could have gotten over this. And I say to my clients, The only criteria for this to work is for you to realize that you are a metaphysical, spiritual being that is living in a human experience. And that all these thoughts and emotions do not represent the truth of you. They are not your worth. They are not your value. They're not evidence of who you are. Just what was done to you. And so validate them all because ultimately they don't mean anything about you. But they won't go away unless they're heard and seen, which is ultimately what we all want. And our emotions are just a part of us and they too want to be heard and seen. And it's okay. They don't magically become the truth just because you say, Of course, I feel this way. And that has been the key to my healing is just realizing everything that is in me. I can either fight it or I can validate it. As long as I understand that validating doesn't make it truth. It just gives it a voice. It just wants to be heard. You can make it funny. You can make it serious. Sometimes I say to people, I call my brain Bob, you know, or I made a video the other day. My brain's a drama queen. It doesn't matter how you look at it, as long as you can get a little separation in there of this is not me.
1: This is just my childhood coming out. And that's okay. One of the things that I was thinking as you were talking about that was that I described I described it as monsters at my door. Really, they're just like little child parts of me that are scared and so worried and um, you know, the one that was like, you're a burden. That's just a little girl who's afraid that she's going to be a burden to people and be rejected. So she wants to warn me, like, don't be a burden. Right. And like the one who was like there, I had one that was like, you don't make enough money. Like you don't have a real job, you know, like whatever, whatever it was saying. That's just another little girl who kept trying to get her dad to notice her so that she could feel important. And he never like I. They felt like monsters, but really, like they're they're just these little babies inside me, right? These little tiny Remy's who are just like so worried that she's gonna get rejected, or that she's gonna get hurt. And they're trying, they're really just trying to protect her. And it was like, yeah, if I validate them and I'm like, God, I hear you. I hear you. You're really worried. I mean, I couldn't in that moment, I kind of couldn't, cause I was just like really overwhelmed. But like when I get past the overwhelm and can kind of get a catch my breath a little bit being like, yep. Yep. Just really being able to validate that. Thank you so much, Jess. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. How, how, I mean, are you taking new clients? And if so, how can people reach you?
0: Oh, yes, I'm taking new clients. Um, and my website's not working right. So, (laughs) um, Mercury retrograde strikes again. (laughs) So I'm working on that. Um, if anybody wants to work with me, um, the best way to do it is either text me on my phone, which is 828-228-2612 or email me at soulhealingwithjess
1: at gmail.com. Amazing. Perfect. And if you want to get a hold of me, you can find me on Insta at the Patrama Party or on my personal Insta at Remy's, R-E-M-E-E-Z. You can also email me at patramaparty at gmail.com. If you have a topic you'd like to hear covered, hit me up. Also, if you want to join the Petrama Party community, you can find us on Facebook. It's such a cool group of listeners. We check in with each other about the stuff we're going through and offer support and resources just as a part of it. <laughs> so if you're into that, just search the Patrama Party and I'll add you. And speaking of support, if this pod has helped you and you have a minute, rate, review, subscribe. It really does help. And I read all of the reviews. And if you'd like to support the pod, you can now. You can give a dollar a month dollars. I really do pour myself into this podcast. I put so much time and energy in. So if you're able and move to, just go to podcasters.spotify.com forward slash pod forward slash show forward slash the patrama party and scroll down to the support button. And you can also find the support option on Spotify. And until next time, baby, enjoy the party. Bye. The information provided on this podcast is for informational purposes only. None of the material presented is intended to be a substitute for psychotherapy, counseling, professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. If you need to speak with a professional, find one local to you and reach out directly.